Okay, well, before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is October 20th, 2021, and my name is Ben Bauman, and I'm here in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I'm speaking via phone with Vi Simpson, who is in Bloomington, Indiana, and we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just starting off, when and where were you born? Hmm. I was born in Los Angeles, California in March of 1946. Okay. And uh, what were your parents' names? My father's name was Lloyd Sentman, S-E-N-T-M-A-N. Um, my mother's name was um, Elena Maria Chacon, um, and, uh, and then Sentman. She went by Helen. Okay. Interesting. Um, how did your family get to Indiana? My family didn't come to Indiana. I was raised in California. I moved to Indiana um, in uh, 1978. Oh, okay. And uh, what was the reason? They followed me to Indiana. Okay. Um, I would prefer not to talk about how I got to Indiana. Sure. But <laughs> That's totally fine. Yeah, whatever, up to you, so... I, I chose, let me put it this way, I chose to live in Indiana. Okay. And, and to leave California. Got it. Okay. Um, what were your parents' occupations? Uh, my mother, for, <clears throat> well, let me start with my dad, who was a, a professional meat cutter and a member of the, labor, the Meat Cutters Labor Union, which no longer exists as part of uh, um, the food uh, gosh, what are they called? The Commercial Food Workers Union or whatever it is. They got absorbed into that. But at the time, there was a separate meat cutters union, and he belonged to that. Um, my mother was um, a housewife, homemaker, uh, but also a foster parent. My parents were foster parents. And so she, um, most of my life growing up, uh, I... Uh, there were uh, infants, um, e either orphaned or deserted or neglected infants, um, many of whom had disabilities, um, who came straight from the hospital to our home. That was my mother's specialty. Wow. And, and so sometimes we had two or three babies at a time. Wow. Okay. Um, did you have any siblings growing up? I did not. Okay. And so, how would you describe your childhood overall? Um, uh, my, I, I had a wonderful childhood uh, because I had no siblings, and we all, and we only had infants in the house for me to interact with. Yeah, I spent a lot of time with with adults, um, so uh, I was kind of a tomboy, and um, and. Uh, like to sing and dance and do little plays and things like that. But I learned to, um, to play by myself. Uh, when we moved to uh, Castro Valley, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area, on the East Bay side, um, I had a lot of friends who lived on the same block of the street that I lived on. So we 
we invented all kinds of things to do, uh, as kids did back in those days, you know, where there was nothing electronic. Sure. And, uh, and so we played a lot of ball in the streets and, um, and rode bikes. And uh, I learned to drive a car when I was 12. <laughs> things like that. Wow. Kids today would, would be totally bored with, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, who would you say were the most influential people in your childhood? Um, my, my mother was very influential. I spent a lot of time with my mother, um, uh, and, um, both my mother and father had, um, an interest in politics, uh, and so we talked a lot about politics. Uh, like I said, I spent a lot of time with grown-ups. Um, and, um, but my mom and dad were, were very important, of course, in my life. Um, I didn't live close to other family members. Um, my mother's family was lived, for the most part, in New Mexico and Colorado. And so I'd see them in the summertime. My father's family was from Iowa, and I'd see them in the summertime when we'd vacation. And uh, and so I, I wasn't around other family members very much. Uh, so in some ways, my childhood was uh, a little bit lonely. I probably left that part out. I was I felt very isolated at times because I was I didn't have other kids around. Um, but uh, I also had a couple of teachers who um, invested a lot of time in me and saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. Um, you know, I grew up in a blue-collar household, and so uh, going to college and, and uh, doing uh, big things in my life, it, it, you know, it didn't occur to me other other than uh, being an actress, which is what I wanted to do when I was little. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, so I had a teacher in the sixth grade, Mr. Haller, who who really believed in me and counted on me and, and uh, put me in charge of things and, um, and encouraged me. Um, and then I had a teacher in high school who was actually my choral director, um, who was very active in politics and um, very liberal in her political views, and um, and she uh, encouraged me to get involved in politics. And I, I started working in campaigns when I as a volunteer when I was in high school. Um, I also had on the other side of that coin, I also had a school counselor. Um, Mr. Leaf, I'll always remember it, who, when I went to him and told him that I wanted to be a doctor, uh, told me that girls couldn't be doctors and that if I wanted to be in the medical field, I should think about nursing. And, um, uh, of course, part of that was the time, but part of that was very discouraging to me. Um, my personality is such that it's like, oh, yeah? Right, right. <laughs> That's what you think, buddy. And so um, I uh, so I guess that was encouraging to me, I, it, it, more than discouraging, because it was, I saw it as a challenge yeah. uh, to prove him wrong. 
Yeah. Of course, I didn't become a doctor, so I guess he was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I would say that those adults had the most influence on me uh, and the paths that I chose. I also had a spe- speech and uh, debate cl- club and class, and um, and that teacher. Uh, saw a lot of promise in me and uh, really encouraged me and, and helped helped me a lot in high school. Yeah, okay. Um, so where did you go to college? Uh, California State University uh, in uh, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, what did you study? Well, I was a music major to begin with. Okay. Uh, uh, I tr- I had a lot of majors. I kept switching. Oh, okay, out. sure. Um, but um, I I finally ended up with mostly uh, music. I I finished a music minor and um, and switched at the toward the end to business. So I uh, did a lot of accounting classes and and business classes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, how did you view your college experience overall? Um, it was a commuter college, and so I didn't get to live on campus. Okay. Uh, I didn't do any Greek stuff. Um, I I was as active as you could be in a in a com- commuter setting, uh, but I also had to work because my parents uh, couldn't afford. Uh, college for me and um so i i had a fairly intensive work schedule um i did just dis- i did discover and i should have said this about high school i i did discover that i was a good writer and so uh right out of college i uh, uh did some newspaper writing and became uh, a journalist and um and uh, so I and, and covered. I worked for a weekly newspaper uh, in the South Bay, and um, that was a very um, diverse population. Uh, a lot of Spanish speakers, um, and uh, it, <laughs> and I covered everything. I covered uh, sports. I covered theater. I covered. Uh, but mostly I covered politics and, and really developed my love of uh, government and politics at that time. Oh, okay. And I discovered that I couldn't be a very good journalist because I was way too biased. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it was di- very difficult for me to, uh, to cover politics. So it, at one point I became a... Uh, communications person for uh, a U.S. Senate candidate, and that kind of led me in a whole different direction. Okay. And so um, how did your sort of political developments change after college and, and your, when you started working as a journalist? And Well, I, I, was, I was very active in campaigns um, um, as early as uh, John Kennedy's campaign for president when I was still in high school. Uh, I was uh, uh, in. I was on the committee uh, for Bobby Kennedy. 
uh, in Alameda County. Um, so I did, a, I did a lot of things uh, politically, um, a lot of volunteer work, etc. Um, did and I, as I said, I did some communications work for George Brown when he ran. He was a congressman and ran for uh, the U.S. Senate. Um, he lost in the primary, so that was short-lived, but it was uh, very meaningful to me. Um, so a couple of things happened. Uh, the Vietnam War was very impactful for me. Um, uh, the civil rights movement, uh, particularly the migrant farm workers uh, in California, uh, since uh, so much of my family on my mother's side uh, were... Um, and are uh, Latinos and Native Americans, and often um, I, I had a lot of uh, um, interaction with uh, Latino culture sure. uh, growing up. Um, so I was very active in that. Um, uh, but the Vietnam War was just so overwhelming, and then. Um, as I, I mentioned, I worked on Bobby Kennedy's campaign, and uh, and when he was killed, and uh, and also Martin Luther King that year, uh, 1968 was a turning point in my life for sure. Um, I actually dropped out of politics for about a year or so. I didn't oh, wow. have to do with it. I wasn't going to vote. I wasn't. You know, I was done. I it was too heartbreaking. Um, 
and I felt like I'd made a really big mistake. Okay. So I, I decided uh, to, you know, just kind of pull my pants up and figure out, <laughs> act like a big girl, and uh, and try to change things for myself. So I just marched into the um, mayor's office in Bloomington and said uh, he it was uh, election year in '79, a re-election year for him. Yeah. And I walked in there and I said, uh, "You're going to want to hire me because I know how to do this stuff." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, you don't know me, but but I but I I can help you. Yeah. And. Um, and he did. Wow. <laughs> and so I, uh, along with a couple of other uh, local people, um, we there were three of us who kind of co-chaired or co-managed the campaign, and it was um, it was a great experience. It was wonderful, and I figured out that these people here in Bloomington were terrific. They were great. They were well educated. They were very uh, well-read, uh, educated voters um, that uh, that I could really find a, a niche a niche for myself here, and uh, which I did. Yeah. Uh, so he was re-elected in 1979. That was Frank McCloskey, who later became a congressman. And uh, and then in 1980, uh, I was working on a congressional campaign um, and uh, for the current state senator from this district. And uh, it, that didn't work out very well but because we really didn't see eye to eye on things. But, um, but uh, Frank McCloskey called me and asked me if I would be interested in running for county auditor. And my response to that was, what the hell is a county auditor? Because <laughs> in California, there weren't, there weren't any county auditors. Okay. There was no thing. Um, we had controllers, yeah. which it turns out that that's very much the same. But, um, but he said county auditor. I said, I don't know what that is. And he said, don't worry, I'll teach you. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, well, I don't want to run if I have a primary opponent. Um, but other than that, I think I'll do it. Yeah. Um, after all, it was a full-time job, and I, it was politics, and right. got in with the Democrat Party here in Bloomington. So I thought, you know, what's the what's the worst that can happen? So uh, I went down, and he said, oh, no, we're, there's nobody else running. Nobody else is filed in the primary, so you'll just have to run in the general. So I went down, and I filed, and like next to the last day, perhaps, or maybe even the last day, and it turned out that three other people filed as well. So I did have a primary. Oh, wow. A huge primary. <laughs> so I got my little group of my little group of friends together and we put this whole and including my son who was by then um, let's see 1980 he was maybe 10, 11, something like that. Um I guess he was 10. And um and we put a strategy together, and um, we uh, uh, did a lot of door-to-door -door and a lot of uh, heavy-duty campaigning. And so I won the primary. I went on to win the general. 
election, and I was elected county auditor of Monroe County. Wow. In 1980. I, I was sworn in on January 1st, 1981. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, how did your family uh, influence your career when you were in Indiana then? Sounds like there was a some interesting things that, that went on with your children, helping you out, and... My, my kids, I, I dragged along to everything. Yeah. Um, they went to every, you know, chicken dinner, and... They yeah. Went to, they went out and knocked on doors with me. My son loved it. Yeah, he yeah. Loved it. My daughter hated it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, four years difference in their age. So okay. She was younger, and she, she, she thought it was just a huge pain. But she did it, and um, um, as, as it has turned out, both of them are interested in politics. My son works in, in uh, the political arena, and um, he's a lawyer in California. Oh, okay. My, and my daughter is a, an activist, uh, more of an issue person than a political person, but, sure. um, but an activist for sure. Um, so it was, it was hard. Um, my, by this time, my mom and dad had followed me to Indiana. Uh, so my dad had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Okay. And, um, and uh, she needed help with his care. And yeah. so they, we, moved, we moved them here uh, to Bloomington, uh, Ellettsville, actually. And... Um, uh, I, I helped as much as I could, but she was the she was the biggest um, um, help to me. Um, yeah. Because she was able to uh, make sure the kids had dinner every night, even when I was out knocking on doors. That they did their homework. Um, that they uh, that they did all that they needed to do and uh and she she made it possible i couldn't have done it without her yeah wow okay um so when you started to get really involved in indiana state politics and you started to think about running for you know the indiana general assembly were there any key issues or legislation that you're really interested on working on Yes, but let's. I want to back up just yeah, a moment. Yeah, go for it. Tell you that I wasn't. I wasn't thinking about running for state office. Okay. Yeah. I was county auditor. I was uh, doing a good job. I thought. Um, I had um, there was a woman, Charlotte Zietlow, who had been elected the same time in 1980 as uh, county commissioner um, into a almost entirely a Republican um, uh, environment at the county level. Yeah. Um, Monroe County used to be Republican. Um, and so we were both elected that year, and um, the two of us kind of took on all of the old ways of doing things, um, some of the cor- internal corruption that was going on at the courthouse, mm-hmm. um, um, and and so we brought in a lot of reforms. I bought when, when I first ran, uh, the voter registration files were on index cards. 
Oh, wow. Um, there was no computer. We had no computer at the county level, so we bought a computer. We, we um, um, computerized the uh, voter registration files. We computerized the property records um, or started that process, which was a very long, tedious process, but, but we got that done. Um, so we did a lot of reforms. Um, and so I was, I was, you know, cooking. I was, I thought everything was great. Um, intended to run for reelection. And honestly, I don't think I would have been opposed, uh, uh, seriously at that point. Yeah. Um, uh, my, some of my duties as county auditor included um, uh, participation in the um, County Auditors Association and the County Officials Association, Association of Indiana Counties. And so I was on the legislative committee of, of both of those groups. And um, and um, was very active in those groups, mostly because I wanted to learn from my colleagues because I, you know, didn't really know very much. Right. Um, and um, at some point in my duties in the Auditors Association or the County Officials Association, uh, we did a reception for legislators in Indianapolis. And I was there, and I met Senator Louis Maher, mm, okay. um, who, uh, and we talked for a while, and he said to me, um, you have any interest in running for the General Assembly? And I went, I don't think so, no. <laughs> and he said, I, he, I think you want to think about that. You'd be a good candidate. So, you know, that was said, um, and I didn't give it much thought. Um, later, in, this was in 1983, I think so, 1983, toward the end of the year, um, uh, I got a call from uh, Senator Frank O'Bannon, who was the caucus leader at that point uh, of the Democrats in the Senate, and, um, and he was recruiting uh, Louis had mentioned Louis Mayher had mentioned me to uh, Frank, and I was uh, Bloomington at that time was about a 52, 53 percent Republican district. Right. Yeah, there was Republican incumbent, and so Frank called and said, um, "We think you'd be a great candidate, and we would like you to run, and we think we can win this seat." So I had to be convinced. I was not convinced that that was that I could win it but um they kept after me and um and I finally decided uh I think about in December or January of 84 that I would run for the state senate which was really risky okay because there was a republican incumbent in a slightly republican district and I was giving up a safe fairly safe county auditor seat um, yeah. So it was it 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 was risky, um, but being young and foolish, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I decided to do it. And um, and I that summer of '84 is when I met uh, Senator Bill McCarty. Okay. Who what, who took me to lunch one day and 
convinced me that the caucus was uh, was would be helpful and anything I needed, the caucus would be there to help me win this race and yeah. tra- train me on the issues and all of that. Um, and true to his word, the caucus was very helpful. They were... Uh, they came down for press conferences. They they really did help a lot. Yeah. And I was able to win. Yeah, yeah. And so um, what did your campaign emphasize? Um, I, I worked on a, a, the two or three issues that I chose to campaign on. Um, education, education. Um, Supporting public schools and higher education, of course, which included uh, because I have IU and Ivy Tech, both uh, a fairly large Ivy Tech com- uh, campus in in this district. Um, so education is very highly regarded here. It's a very important issue. Um, uh, the second was environmental uh, issues, which in Indiana at that time were totally ignored. We, we didn't have a recycling program. We didn't even have a department overseeing environmental regulation. All the environmental, all, I say all the environmental bills, there were a handful. Um, they would go to the health committee because there wasn't even a committee assigned to um, to learn or take on those issues. Um, and the environment was really rising as an issue in this area um, because while I was county auditor, um, the uh, EPA came into Bloomington and discovered, we had discovered and reported it to EPA that our two of our landfills and one of our uh, Factories were had PCB contamination, Yikes. and um, and so we had some Superfund sites here that were practically in the middle of the city, and and it was a huge issue, huge. Um, plus, uh, Brown County, of course, was in the district, and also part part of Green County at the time, and uh, there was a lot of. Um, timbering issues, logging issues in, in those uh, communities, and as well as water. So environment was very uh, on everybody's plate at, at that time. And the third issue I, w- I wanted to talk about was health care. Um, that really was before it became a national issue, uh, but health care, it seemed to me, was a rising issue because of the aging population, because of lack of insurance and the high costs of pharmaceuticals and things like that. So yeah. I, I really jumped on that and learned as much as I could about health care. Sure. Um, so did you have a particular campaign strategy or... Yeah, win. <laughs> you win, yeah. Uh, That's right. <laughs> I uh, I knocked on millions of doors. I'm sure there weren't millions, but it seemed like millions. Right. Um, I went. I really believe in face to face conversations. I I spent a lot of time knocking on doors every day, seven days a week. Rain, sleet, snow, 
I was there. And I also registered a lot of voters as I went because I noticed that there were lots of people who were not registered. And um, because Bloomington, by comparison to other communities, is fairly transient Mm -hmm. to the university, I think. Um, And so people would move in and out and and they'd get lost in the shuffle. and, And many of them were not registered to vote. So um, I just really worked hard and had a lot of wonderful volunteers who uh, jumped in to help. Yeah. Um, we, didn't, we didn't have a lot of money. We also had a good mail program. Uh, we had enough money to, to finance that. As I said, the caucus was very helpful in helping me raise money. Um, I think our budget was about thirty-five, thirty-six thousand dollars, which was, which was, I think, the largest, largest budget for any Senate race in the state that year. Wow. Okay. Do you remember your uh, opponent? Yes. <laughs> uh, he he was an incumbent, Senator Farrell Duckworth. Oh, okay. And what was it like running against him? Um, Farrell was a very nice man. Um, we lived in two neighboring townships outside of the city limits of Bloomington. Um, I lived in Richland Township, which is Ellettsville and the surrounding area. And he lived in Van Buren Township. His wife was the Van Buren Township trustee. Um, but the population of Van Buren and the population of Richland were almost the same at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and both fairly Republican townships, so uh, it it was it was. I tried really hard to make some inroads into Van Buren Township. Um, it was difficult though. Yeah. <laughs> and Eastern Green County, which was neighbors Van Buren Township, and it was uh, that was really difficult. Um. He didn't spend much time in Brown County, as I recall. And so I, Brown County being the same population as Van Buren and Richland, I decided I would go over there and spend a lot of effort, um, and, and which I did. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I had a lot of responses from people saying, gosh, we've never even seen our state senator. We don't know what it is kind of thing. <laughs> And so I, I think that was helpful. I had a lot of wonderful volunteers in Brown County. Brown County people are fabulous. I love Brown County. Yeah. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was um, let me say it was polite. It okay. Was, it was, you know, we weren't friends or anything, but we, we were respectful of one another. Um, we had a couple of debates. Um, I had a couple of press conferences. He made a couple of bad votes, which I was able to, uh, pounce upon and, um, and that seemed to be enough. Um, later Farrell and I got to be better friends, mm-hmm. uh, well, better acquaintances. I'll put it that way. Um, I don't, it, Yeah. So yeah, it was it was a different day then when people were cordial with one another. Sure. 
what did you think of the election process? Uh, well, it was it was the hand that was dealt me. You know, yeah. it was. Um, these are the rules. This is what you do, and so we just did it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't have time really to think about. Yeah. Uh, think about it. Um, I, it. It was fine. It worked fine. I won. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, looking back at it, were there were there kind of things that you wish were different about the election process, or was it kind of you know made sense to you and was pretty efficient? Uh, no, I thought it went it went pretty well. Okay, um, it, it had much more of a local flavor. Um, you know the camp, the uh, the election workers were local people that I knew from church or from school. Yeah, um, kids were in school in Richland Township, for instance. So um, I had a, a ton of kids who were volunteers. For okay, <laughs> who marched in the parades and and uh, worked the polls and did all kinds of things for me. And you know, you just if you buy them a hamburger and, a, and give them a T-shirt, they're more than happy to help. Plus, I had taught Sunday school for several years, so um, all my Sunday school kids were out there helping. Um, and it, so it was a very, uh, the whole campaign was very local. A lot of my, my best friends and um, people who, uh, my friends who worked in the county auditor's office um, who wanted to help and then all these kids friends of my my sons and kids from from church and yeah it was that kind of campaign it was uh, yeah yeah it was it was fun actually we had a lot of fun <laughs> and so how did you feel when you first found out that you won the election Oh, I, we were elated. It, it was a it was a long evening because it was very close as the votes came in. Um, uh, I was behind, and uh, my son, who was really into this stuff, in '84 he was was he a freshman in high school by then? He was 14 years old, so I think he was a freshman in high school. But anyway, he was—he had these big spreadsheets, you know. Again, not access to computers like we have now, but he made these big spreadsheets with every precinct, and he estimated somehow how many votes I needed to win by, or how many votes I could lose by and still win the election. <laughs> wow! <laughs> every single precinct. And when the precincts were reported, he would record it on this big spreadsheet. Oh, my gosh. So it was about 11.30, close to midnight, and I was still behind. And uh, Senator Duckworth, um, according to the newspaper reporter who was with me, uh, he said that Senator Duckworth had just um, claimed victory. Mm. And did I want to concede? And my son, my 14-year-old son, comes over and says, don't you dare. Our precincts aren't in yet. And so I said, oh, no, you know, there's still a long night to go, blah, blah, blah. Right. 
the sick things that you say. And I'll be darned, uh, within an hour, we had overtaken him and ended up winning by <laughs> a couple thousand votes. So, oh, my gosh. But, uh, yeah, so you, you just, uh, you never... You don't concede until the last vote's counted, I guess. Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, we were ecstatic, to say the least, because um, we thought all night we were going to lose. Oh, yeah. It was close. It was close. Um, <laughs> I do have one little story. Yeah. About when I went to Organization Day, which is when we're sworn in officially you become the state senator that the day of the election or the day after the election um by state statute i guess right um but they do have this swearing in ceremony so on on organization day so in later in november a few weeks after the election i get all gussied up and um in my suit and my new suit, and go to the state house, and um, and I I just walked in all by myself, and I walked into the chamber, the Senate chamber, and nobody was in there, but there is a the, back in the old days before computerized voting, they had a big board with everybody's name on it, and then lights would light up whether it was red or green for to record your votes and I looked up on that board and there was my name and I thought oh my god what have I done (laughs) I I don't know how to do this what am I going to do um and I I got really nervous all of a sudden until that time I was proud and excited right but just standing in this chamber where you know, these giants had stood in the past. Sure. Um, you know, people who had been governors and senators and, you know, who had stood in this chamber and their name had been on the board. And um, and I just thought, oh, my God, I'm in way over my head. You've taken one too many risks <laughs> this time, girly. So, <laughs> um, anyway, then we come back to work. Uh, I get sworn in, and then we start our committee hearings and start filing bills and so forth. Um, And I sat through a couple of committee hearings, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, these guys aren't that special. Right. (laughs) You know, I listen to them talk. I listen to them present their bills. uh, I listen to questions that they were asking the authors of bills or asking lobbyists who were testifying and it was obvious that some of them hadn't even read the bills uh, they had no understanding of the bill and it was like you, you know I think I can do this job yeah. I, really, I think I can and for me that was a big turning point because um, I I wasn't the most confident of um, people plus I was there were only four women in the Senate um, and so I was younger than most of my colleagues. I was one of the few women, and um, and I was scared. Um, and that 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 realization that these people 
uh, are, uh, it's a citizen legislature, which means, you know, there are realtors and teachers and farmers and construction workers. These people are just like our next door neighbors. Right. And I can do this job. Um, there isn't anybody in here better than me. Uh, no one in here is worse than me. <laughs> um, and so I, it really, it really helped propel me, uh, into a place of more, uh, assertiveness, uh, maybe some would say aggressiveness, um, to be a proponent for those things that I was elected to represent and the people I was elected to represent. It, it was a real turning point for me when I, when I finally was honest about the people who I, who I was serving with and, um, and realized, yes, I, I can learn this job. I can do it and I can do it well. And, um, and so I think I answered your question. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. Um, so once you started to get, you know, comfortable in the general assembly and you started to have more elections coming up, did you change campaign strategies at all or? Not really. Uh, the, the toughest campaign I had was not the original one in 84, but the next one in 88. Oh, okay. Um, the, my first re-election campaign in 1988, uh, which my uh, son um, and daughter were very involved in, both of them. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, I ran against a city council, longtime city council member, um, who was very highly respected and highly regarded. Um, he and his wife were uh, uh, big contributors to lots of causes in the, in the city. So um, that was a very tough campaign, and I really worked hard at it and spent a lot of money, raised a lot of money and spent a lot of money. Uh, but we, we won it um, not because um, not because that my opponent was not capable. He, he certainly could have served and served very well, but because um, we worked twice as hard and 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 by then I was the incumbent right so I had been working on a lot of issues that the community was very interested in so um, so I think that's why uh, we won that one but that was the toughest race was in 88. Bill suggested that I talk about the difference between running for election election or and running for re-election oh okay yeah because it, there is a difference psychologically sure um, because when you run the first time um for an office you if you lose you lose you know you it's not something you take personally um you hope you hope you will win um when you're running for re-election however I, I always felt more pressure because it, then it is, um, it is a, it is a, what is it? It is a, a, a comment on you personally. 
uh, and the job that you did. Right. Or are doing. And so it, it was, for me, it was um, one of those things where I'm not a I'm not a good loser anyway, so <laughs> I admit to it. Um, I, there was no way anybody was going to beat me. Yeah, <laughs> because I thought I had done a good job, and damn it, I was going to make sure everyone else thought I did a good job too. And uh, it, it, but it is it there is more pressure running for re-election, I think than running the first time. Yeah, sure. At least it was for me. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so when you're in the Indiana General Assembly, you mentioned kind of, you know, feeling a little pressure once you saw your name on the board for the first time. Um, did you feel pretty comfortable with sort of your expectations for the legislative process? And once you started, you know, going through the committees, uh, did you feel like, you know, th this wasn't too complicated or did you feel like there was a learning curve at all? Uh, I think I, w I, I had uh, prepared my brain for, uh, for uh, it to be very complicated. And yeah. all this, all these committee hearings and conference committees, and you know all the secret backroom negotiations, and how am I going to learn that? How am I going to get involved in that enough so that I have, so that I can really perform? Right. Uh, and I, I was, I was nervous about that. Um, I don't think it was as complicated as I thought it was going to be. Okay. Uh, if I thought it was uh, an easier task, um, but I I came with the mindset. Of course, I've been around legislatures in both California and Indiana um, from my previous work experiences, but um, I I I thought I really came with the mindset that I'm going to do my homework. I'm going to be better prepared than anybody else on the floor or yeah. in that committee room, and um, and that gave me the confidence, I think, to to believe in myself. And I and so learning learning how it works. There's a bit of a learning curve for sure. Yeah. The biggest part of the curve, however, is not in what I had to learn about the process, but in what my colleagues had to learn about me. Okay. Interesting. Because that takes time and you have to prove to them that you can be trusted, that your word is gold and that, um, when you say you're going to do something, you do it, and and you uh, take care of the uh, the little courtesies like informing uh, somebody ahead of time that you're going you're going to have an amendment on their bill, or um, you know little little courtesies that not everyone does, but it always seemed like the right thing to do to me. Yeah. Um, I was, I, I spent 28 years in the Senate. I was always in the minority and I knew up front 
that's serving in the minority but it's going to be different than than uh, serving in the majority and that you had to depend on uh, your colleagues across the aisle in order to have successes yeah and um, and so I worked very hard to build relationships and um, and and mostly people got to know that on certain issues I would be the most informed person in the room Wow okay yeah because I worked really hard at being that yeah. Um, there wasn't anybody doing environmental stuff, for instance, in the legislature in 1985. Or sure, interesting, yeah. And I wanted to have a place that I could um, uh, really delve into that was unique and that would make me stand out, which was really important in, when you're one of 50 people. And so I worked really hard at the environmental stuff. Um, and that was good for me in my district, of course. So it was good, polit- good, good politics, but it was also good policy because Indiana was so far behind in terms of uh, its environmental policy. And uh, so, I, so I got to the place where people, on uh, Republicans would come and ask me, about uh, an environmental issue. Um, and uh, I had a couple of colleagues across the aisle who would always ask me to be on their bill with them, which I, uh, I suspect was to share the load of um, uh, the, share the workload yeah. uh, on a particular issue, particularly if it was uh, technical uh, in nature. Um, so uh, later, we created uh, a Republican and and I uh, cre- introduced legislation to create the Department of Environmental Management, and it and then it got its own committee, um, in, which I served on, and um, and because we kept trying to. There were a couple of Republicans who really got it that this environmental stuff is going to be the wave of the future. You know, these are the issues we're going to be talking about the next decade, and and so they were there. There were several of them, maybe three, four of them, who really got involved in some environmental issues, and really we worked together on them. Yeah. I, I'm off the track. I've forgotten your question, Neil. <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, you've been just you know, talking about some other things I was curious about, so that's totally fine. Um, actually, uh, thinking of another question, uh, were there any people that you kind of thought of as political mentors when you first got into the General Assembly that kind of helped you figure things out? Or Absolutely. Um I was uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, I served with uh, uh, Senate, then Senator Julia Carson, uh, who later became Congresswoman Carson from Indianapolis. Yeah, um, who was helpful to me. I uh, one big disappointment I had was that the women there were two Democrats and two Republicans, I believe. Okay. When I, elected uh they were not 
generally as supportive as I had hoped they would be. Mm. You know, um, they were not, they didn't share a lot of information and, you know, it was, uh, they already had their groups, right? Okay. Or whatever. And, and uh, so they weren't terribly welcoming. Um, Julia, I think was, was the most welcoming. Um, but um, Senator Louis Mayhern, Senator Mike Gary, and Senator Bill McCarty were a threesome. Uh, they were like the three musketeers. They all hung together, and they um, and they kind of adopted me. I was like the little sister for the for them. Yeah, and and they were incredibly helpful to me and mentored me. Uh, helped me uh, uh, hurdle some very large roadblocks occasionally. Um, Mistakes that I probably would have made if it hadn't been for their advice. The best advice I got, when I first got there, I asked for the education committee because, you know, I had campaigned on education issues. My district was very pro-education. Sure. I wanted the education committee. Um, a few months into it, um, Senator Gary, uh, from West Lafayette gave me the best advice that I had in the legislature. And that was, if you want to impact education policy, follow the money. Mm, And it turns out that they also gave that same advice. He gave that same advice to Bill McCarty. And so both Bill and I had put in for the finance committee after that because it became obvious to me, of course, that um, education policy is really done in the budget and in the finance committee. It isn't done. It isn't done in the education committee. Right. At least wasn't at the time. And, um, and so I, I kind of changed where I was going, uh, in terms of, of my, uh, my areas of expertise. So I did spend a lot of time on healthcare. I spent a lot of time on the environment, but I also spent an enormous amount of time on budget issues. And when, as soon as there was an opening in finance, I got appointed to finance. As soon as there was an opening in budget, I got appointed to budget um, and became, I was the first woman to serve on budget. I was the first woman to chair the budget committee. Um, and uh, because because I don't think anybody had ever told a woman who came, who came to the legislature that you should follow the money because that's really where the power is. Right, right. And I, when you hear it described, you always hear uh, when people talk about the Senate Finance Committee, it's not just the Senate Finance Committee. Of course, it's got a new name now. But um, it was always the powerful Senate Finance Committee. Yeah. Uh, that was just a, an adjective that just went along with it. And the same is true of the Budget Committee, which is even more powerful. The Budget Committee meets all year round. Sure. Um, and... Uh, uh, and, and those are closely held positions. I mean, you have to wait for people to die, basically, <laughs> to get those positions. Um, but that, to me, that was the best advice I received. Uh, but 
all, all three of those guys were my mentors. Um, they, they were all intelligent. They were well-spoken, articulate. They were great at the microphone. Um, and so um, in many ways, they, they opened doors for me uh, on my legislative career that, uh, that I don't think I could have done by myself. Okay, sure. So how did you uh, keep track of the needs and wants of your constituents? Um, I interacted a lot with my constituents. I really believe in that. Um, I, I, I always did uh, what we call third house uh, opportunities uh, on Saturdays at during session, we would meet and people would come. Uh, I did a lot of television shows because we have the uh, public television station in Bloomington, public radio. We had a couple of radio stations at the time. Um, at the time, the local newspaper had a reporter who covered the legislature. Um, they don't do that anymore, but uh, at the time, there was a lot of news coverage of what the legislature was doing, and I always had an open door uh, to the press and media. Coming from that world myself, as a former newspaper person, um, I, 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 I tried to uh, foster relationships there so that um, I could have a, a medium, really, for communicating to and receiving information back from my uh, constituents. Right, so okay. I, I, plus, I kept up as much as I could when we weren't in session um, uh, all of my activities in the community. My, my daughter was still in school. Um, my son was in college for most of the time um, and then law school. And, um, but, but I was still active in things, you know, I went to all the music concerts and all of those things. I, uh, I did my own grocery shopping and all of those things. So, um, I kept up as much as I could interacting with, with my constituents. I often started, uh, like if I was checking out at the Kroger's, um, uh, I would ask the clerk some question about some tax policy we were we were debating, or okay. you know, ask about well, what do you know about uh, PCP PCB disposal and what's going on with that? Just to get a feel for what they knew and uh, and and how they were perceiving what was going on in Indianapolis. Sure. I tried to do that, but I, I think Bill mentioned this to you, and I feel so strongly about this. Half of our job is legislating as a legislator, is coming up with the laws and, you know, or, or killing laws that are potential laws that are bad. Um, the other half is communicating with constituents yeah. to make sure that they know and understand as, as much as you can impart upon them uh, on the issues of the day. Um, and I, I used to tell people, uh, my colleagues, who said, oh, I can't vote for that tax increase. Uh, you know, I can't vote for that because my constituents 
And it's like, no, 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 you've got that backwards. You sh- if you cannot learn about an issue, study it, research it, know as much as you can, and make a decision, place your vote, and then go home and explain why, how you did it, and why you did it the way you did, then you shouldn't be here. Right. And that two-way communication with your constituents, I think, is is just as important as the legislators' part. And I think a lot of legislators, a lot of congressmen, for sure, a lot of state legislators forget that because they get in Indianapolis and it's fun and you get to go out to dinner, you know, and sure. you get to <laughs> do all that stuff, have a cocktail after dinner, you know, that kind of stuff. And that's why they're there. And they throw in a couple of bills during the session, but they don't communicate with their with their constituents. And so, what have you gained? What have, what have what good has you, have your constituents gotten out of you serving? Right. And so, to me, that was a very important thing. I always spoke to uh, schools uh, when I was invited. I often. Um, spoke to government classes, high school economics classes, uh, political science classes. I and I tried to speak to all the fourth grade classes I could because they study state government. Um, just because I thought that was my job. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um. So <clears throat> you mentioned your husband Bill a little bit earlier. Um, what was it like serving with Bill McCarty after you guys got married and you're both in the Indiana General Assembly together? Well, it was the weirdest thing because we were really close friends. The the four of us, the three musketeers became four, um, and they took me everywhere. Yeah. I, you know, I never, a lot of the women were afraid to go out after dark. Okay. You know, we had a late session and we couldn't. You couldn't go out to dinner or anything because it was dark and if you were by yourself. And so they always included me in everything. Yeah. And we just got to be really close friends, the the four of us. And um, and so it never was was more than that um, until all of a sudden it was. Yeah. um, And then when we got married... In November of 1989, Louie and Mike were in our wedding. They were oh, okay. ushers in our wedding um, because we were just so close, the four of us. So if I was used to serving with him, um, it didn't change that much, really. Um, uh, didn't change that much after we were married. Um I'm trying to think how it might have. Mostly it was how other people reacted to us. Sure. To, I mean, we were you know, in the national news for a while because we were the <laughs> only uh, couple from... There were some House and Senate members in, in Alaska and I think one other state. Yeah. A House member and a Senate member were married. I don't, but we were the only ones in the same chamber Yeah. at, uh, at the time, I and so, yeah, we were in the national news, and uh, so other people around us, some of our colleagues and staff, reacted to us in, in, a, in strange ways. But uh, I, I don't think 
I don't think it changed us very much. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, because we, we each, our districts were different. Um, uh, you know, we have, uh, I, I can describe my district, but you probably know it. Um, and and his, it, it's different than his district. His was much more of a blue collar, um, uh, UAW town, uh, um, much more um, uh, working working people, um, and then they had that small private university, um, and then and my my district was much more, you know, faculty and staff. I mean, there were um, something like six. I want to say six thousand, maybe eight thousand now faculty and staff. Oh, okay. Yeah. At IU, just IU in my district. Um, so it, it's a totally different climate. Um, um, we, everybody used to tease me because I would get more mail when we used to get mail, and later more emails than anybody else in the <laughs> Senate because my, I, I always said, my, I have a very noisy district. You know, they're. They're they're well read and well educated and they participate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I I don't think other other legislators had that. Um, I'll say gift. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, sometimes was a gift and sometimes it wasn't. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. But our so our districts are very different. So we. We just went about our business representing our districts. The hardest part was remembering where we were, which weekend we were spending in which city. <laughs> <laughs> because we had Bill's house in Anderson and my house in Bloomington, and um, sometimes I want to I get dressed in Bloomington, and I remember I left Jimmy, I left my beige shoes in Anderson. Yeah, you know that kind of thing. But those were logistical problems for us. Not it didn't have anything to do with our jobs. Right, right. <laughs> do you remember the first bill that you sponsored? <laughs> uh, I don't remember if it was the first. I remember the first one I passed. Okay. Um, which had to do with uh, it was just I was just on the edge of welfare reform. I was just, you know, it hadn't, Bill Clinton hadn't been elected yet. Nobody was talking about welfare reform, but I was, it, I was doing a little tweaking of some, uh, some of the, uh, um, AFDC legislation, um, yeah. dependent children legislation. And I, so I put in this bill it, and I got it passed. Uh, I was the first author and everything. It was like, oh, wow, this is so exciting, my first bill. And the governor vetoed it. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I was so upset because, and it it turned out that he misread it and that that they misunderstood what I was doing. Oh, wow. I went to the governor's office and, and tried, I, and explained it. And they said, oh, oh, well, we just, we misunderstood what you were doing. Um, so let's try and fix that. And so uh, what we found out then is that there's no way in Indiana to reverse a veto. Oh my gosh. 
once the governor vetoes the bill, he can't take it back. The only thing you can do is override the veto. Yeah. Um, or just introduce reintroduce the bill next year. Yeah. Which is what I decided to do. I yeah. decided not to do a veto override. I was a freshman, a Republican governor, Republican majority. I, it's like, oh no, you're not you 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 may be earnest, but you're not stupid. So you're still going to try. <laughs> so I just reintroduced the bill the next year. But yeah, that was uh, my introduction to the bill process. <laughs> uh, what differences did you notice between the House and Senate? Well, um, the House is a, a little sillier. Okay. Um, they had they had way more fun than we did. Yeah. On, on the floor, um, uh, they would do things like uh, uh, throw spit wads at people, and <laughs> speakers, and uh, throw uh, rubber bands were a big hit. Yeah, they were shoot rubber bands at whoever was speaking, and and they were just more rambunctious over there. Okay. Uh, we were much more. Um, dignified um, <laughs> some people would say stuffy yeah uh, one time in the senate um i can't remember exactly how this happened but i, I think there was an incident with a water gun one of the republican women uh virginia blankenbaker from indianapolis brought a water gun to the floor and she started shooting the guy. Oh my gosh. who was speaking. And uh, I think they she got in trouble for that because yeah, yeah. that the decorum in the Senate is it was beneath our dignity. Yeah. Uh, kind of thing. Um, we all thought it was funny but the <laughs> president pro champ didn't think so. So she got in trouble for that. Um <laughs> Yeah, I uh, yeah. So the biggest difference was in how we acted on the floor. I think. Yeah. Um, I do think that there is a difference between a body that has a four-year term and a body that has a two-year term. Okay. In, in you know the house is always running for re-election. Right. <laughs> There's no respite. There's no breathing room. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think that that has an influence on how what they do and what they say sometimes. But, yeah, I think it's mostly decorum. I think that's what people would notice the most. Uh, how did that, you... Yeah. That and the average age, perhaps. Oh, okay. <laughs> the, the Senate are a lot of old white men. <laughs> And the house is much more diverse. Okay. Uh, how did you garner support for your legislation when you served? Uh, building relationships before you needed to use that relationship was really vital. To okay. Um, I made as many friends as I could on the other side of the aisle, um, and um, I tried to identify those people whose 
word I can trust. Um, I, sometimes they disappointed, but most of the time they were they would come through. And uh, uh, I I got a lot of legislation passed in the minority um, uh, because I I really worked to have those kind of relationships with people. Right. Yeah. I think that's vital, especially when you're in the minority. The minority is really different than being in the majority, I think. But I, from what I've observed, um, it's it. You, you have to be really prepared, really know your subject. Um, those kinds of things, which I think are obvious, but it was the relationships that I was able to build and the mutual trust that I was able to garner with uh, with certain people on the uh, other side of the aisle. But the same is true in the House, too. You have to go... The House would switch back and forth between Democrat leadership and, and uh, Republican leadership. And so... Um, so you had to have relationships in both on the Democrat side and the Republican side in the House, because once you get your bill through the Senate, you still have to go through that whole process in the House. And yeah. so you have to have people over there who you trust will work it as hard as you did. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, it's only it's only one third done when you get it out of your own house. You you have. Uh, second third is you get it in the other house get it through the other house and then the third third is really conference committee um, if it goes to conference committee which was always my favorite part of the process (laughs) yeah sure Um, how influential would you say party leadership was when it came to passing legislation Um, on the on the subject matter, um, on the political ramifications of the topic, um, uh, the, the leader is uh, the, the president pro tem of the Senate is always very powerful and has gotten more powerful over the years. Yeah, uh, but is always powerful because they choose the committee that the bill is assigned to. Uh, they choose the committee chairman, so they really choose what bills get heard in committee or at least have input there if they want to. Um, and um, I always had a great appreciation for Senator Garden because uh, Senator Garden um, from Columbus was, um, he, he, he wasn't, he wasn't, I would say he wasn't a control freak. Okay. Um, he gave he gave some um, he gave he gave some he he respected all the members of of both caucuses, and he gave us a lot of leeway, particularly committee chairs. So if you could go and convince a committee chair that you really needed a hearing and 
or, or, you know, can I work with you on this bill? If you don't like the bill, how can I change it? You know, those kinds of things. He would give a lot of leeway to that committee chair. Um, I found that uh, with um, Senator Long, uh, who followed Senator Garten as pro tem, um, Senator Long, like, he, he kept a tighter rein, I think on committee chairs. I may be saying that wrong, but I think that's my gut feeling anyway. Yeah. I was caucus chair uh, when, uh, with, and served with Senator Long, so that I was leader of the Democrat caucus at that time, when he was pro tem, um, at least for part of the time he was pro tem. And um, he, he had a much different leadership style than Senator Garten. So I think it, I think it varied. When Senator Garten really felt invested in something, he would, he would use his power, his influence. Um, but I, but I think he, he had a, a respect for the process and gave more leeway. Um, he, he gave more leeway to the committee committees themselves in the committee chairs at least that's how I felt yeah yeah did you um, ever go against your own party leadership on a on a bill or probably I can't remember one right now but I I probably did okay I, I was a bit of a rebel okay <laughs> um being a being a leader of a caucus is uh, a very difficult task because regardless of whether you're serving in the majority or the minority, uh, there are 50 egos. Um, I mean, you don't, you're, you're not a, no one sees themselves as a backbencher forever. You know, yeah. um, uh, people are there because they are confident in themselves. Um, they, believe in themselves they uh, and for the most part they're all nice people you know they're people you would like to have dinner with because they're fun yeah nice uh, or else they wouldn't get elected right if they were mean <laughs> yeah um and so um you've got all those egos plus you have the staff egos and staff personnel issues and uh, and then there are all the little policy differences. For instance, uh, when I was leader of the caucus, we had some Southern Indiana Democrats who who were more conservative than some of the Marion County or some of the Lake County, Porter County legis- uh, colleagues, and um, and so sometimes you'd have these big fights, not down gray out fights in, in your caucus meetings. And and it was up to you as the leader of a caucus to bring everybody together and to get them all going in one direction. Um, sometimes it was impossible, but most of the time uh, we were able to do that. But it really it takes a lot of energy, a lot of work to to bring that group together sometimes they don't even like each other you know it's uh because they really they really are different somebody who represents uh um i don't know chesterton 
down by New Albany is, is totally different than somebody who represents Gary. Um, and But they're in the same caucus, and so you've got to find some common ground. How can we have unity as a, as a caucus? How can we present uh, the the greatest amount of power that we can muster by by unifying our voice. So what what is our voice? What how can we represent everybody? Um, and it that and that took a lot of energy. It's a very tough job. So I don't um, I don't envy the the pro tems or the speakers um, because they had to do it even on a bigger scale. Yeah. Sure. It's tough. It's a tough job. Bill was the assistant leader for several years, um, and then uh, and then I became assistant leader at some point in there, and then I became leader in the last few years I was there. Yeah. Okay. Um, what were the interactions like between Democrats and Republicans when you served? Actually, they were they were very good. They were better than I expected. Um, relationships, as I mentioned, I think are the most important thing in the process. And uh, so we we really worked at trying giving ourselves opportunities to get to know each other and to spend time with each other, learn about families and you know those kinds of things. So people would. Um, have dinners, uh, a chairman of the committee might have a dinner for all his committee members, and then give each one a chance to speak a few words of, like, um, you know, something funny, an anecdote, or something about your family, or something, Um, and so there were several committees that did that. Um, We did these uh, spaghetti dinners, and I know Bill, I won't bore you with that, but Bill, Bill mentioned it to you already. Um, for the backbenchers, um, to, so that everybody would get to know each other. Um, uh, Senator Pease and Senator Swords uh, on the Republican side would in, would invite in four or five Republicans, and I would invite four or five Democrats, and we would all get together at Senator Swords' condo, and Ed Pease and I would cook. And um, people would bring their guitars, and we'd sing, and we, you know, it was just fun, lots of fun. No lobbyists, no nobody there, but members. And um, and it's amazing of what those little efforts can do uh, later on when you need when you need a friend. And believe me, there are many times when you need a friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. How did your legislative service affect your family life? Oh, it was tough. Uh, I I couldn't have served without my mother um, because I have to. I I commuted. I drove back and forth between Bloomington and Indianapolis, and sometimes I'd get home so late the kids would already be in bed, and and then I'd leave before they left for school, and you know. Um, but my mom was kind of the rock. Honestly, I don't know how women, no, let me put it another way. I think it's much more difficult for women with children to serve, and I think that's a real barrier yeah. for, 
uh, for women in running for the legislature because of the schedule, because of the way um, uh, the, the calendar is set up, because it's all what should be a full year's worth of work, we squish into four months, right? And yeah. so there are a lot of long, long days and late nights. And um, I remember I remember one time we had a, I don't know if it was a special session or we were just meeting on Saturday for some reason, maybe the budget or something. I can't remember. There was some reason we were in session on Saturday. My daughter was going to the prom, her first prom. Um, and I, I was just, beside myself that I was going to, I had missed so many things, you know, yeah. games and stuff. And it was like, I'm not going to miss the prom. I'm going to go, I'm going to go home. And so, and we had an important vote that night. I can't remember what, what it was going to be. I, did, I wish I could remember the details, but, um, so my caucus, caucus, um, the leader of the caucus stood up and called a caucus and the Democrats went to caucus and I jumped in my car, went home to Bloomington, took all the pictures uh, of my daughter getting ready for prom, drove back up and, um, and then they convened, reconvened and uh, we voted. Wow. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't think, I do think that the, those responsibilities are felt more by the women in the legislature than by the men. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, sounds like it's pretty complicated to be able to have that balance with uh, being in the General Assembly and taking care of your family, and especially if your kids are relying on you, so. Yeah, I, I think it's why so many of the women wait until their children are grown. Yeah, yeah. Before they join, which which has it has an impact on what they're able to accomplish because seniority is so important in the legislature. Sure. And in terms of chairmanships, uh, positions, you know, that you uh, committee assignments, those kinds of things. Seniority is very important. Um, and they don't have time to to achieve the seniority because they start much later than men do. Yeah. Um, that's not always true. I'm generalizing, but, uh, but I think it, it does have an impact. And uh, so some of the women, many of the women, are older when they first get elected. That's interesting, yeah. And all of that would change, of course, if half of the legislature were women mm -hmm. in the first place. The rules would change to accommodate that. Right. <clears throat> Someday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm doing everything I can to make that happen. <laughs> yeah, have you, have you seen an increase in women coming to the General Assembly at a younger age, or is it pretty much the same from when you left? No, there are younger women. There okay. are younger uh, younger members, period. Uh, yeah. And we went through a period where there were a lot of women being elected, and I think we got up to, I don't know, maybe the, maybe a quarter of the members in the House were women okay. at one point. 
and then it started to slack off again. Okay. Um, and I don't know what it is this minute, but, um, and, you know, with gerrymandered districts, mm -hmm. I don't know how many women we can get elected, but uh, it's um, at least new women. Yeah. I, yeah. It's a, it's, it's a tough life um, for women. Uh, especially women with families. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, what would you say was the most controversial legislative issue during your time in the assembly? Oh, so many. <laughs> um, well, there were seat belts. Okay. Uh, anything to do with cigarettes. Um, I, I carried with Senator Miller, um, the um, smoke-free zones in public buildings, et cetera, um, that you would have thought we were trying to kill people with our legislation. <laughs> 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 to, uh, and actually, we were trying to protect them. But, right. you know. Um, so, uh, let's see. Seatbelts, tobacco, um, all of the gaming legislation was very time-consuming, um, and, uh, yeah, there was a lot of controversy about the gaming, uh, whether it was the lottery, then horse racing, then, then uh, casinos, riverboats, now casinos. Um, let's see. For me, personally, the legislation that was the most difficult uh, were, were bills restricting women's reproductive health. Mm, okay. Uh, it was, uh, I was always the woman in the Senate that everybody turned to to carry the banner uh, to try to defeat those bills. And I was so often outnumbered and... Uh, and I was so moved by the women whose stories I've heard and and um, and my own life has been touched by by some of those issues um, and and some of the some of the people who would carry the legislation who didn't understand uh, the whole idea of of, of conception and reproduction and I mean they get so many things wrong it was like oh my god you yeah. don't need a health class <laughs> and and it was it was so it was really difficult for me and yeah. now you know it's all coming up again it's like I started working on women's reproductive rights uh or women's rights, actually, because it included economic uh, equity and uh, credit and those kinds of things from in the early 70s. Um, so I, I feel, in a way, like some of my life's work is melting away mm, before okay. now because we seem to be going backwards in some of those areas. And... Every time I speak to a group, I try to talk to young women about, you know, you, you, I, I lived in a time when you had to have a man co-sign so you could buy a car, 
you had to have your husband's permission to take birth control pills. Um, uh, wow. I lived in a time when women had to go to Mexico um, and they might or might not get back um, mm-hmm. with all their parts um, in order to uh, to stop a pregnancy. Um, and so I, I tried to tell them that now women my age who fought those battles are really old and tired. Right, right. <laughs> and now it's it's your turn. You have to be vigilant. You have to get out there. You have to, you know, where are your walking shoes? Where are your signs? Where is your anger about uh, about these things? Because uh, because things like access to contraception and, and uh, insurance coverage for birth control and and reproductive health measures, those kinds of things can be taken away with a just a, just the signing of the governor's name on a bill. Mm-hmm. It, it can disappear. And it's, and it's uh, so for me, I think that one was the toughest one. Um, I, I carried some legislation with Senator Pease, um, who was from uh, Terre Haute, and our districts were side by side. Uh, for for a few years anyway, um, and we carried this Wetlands Protection Act, and it took us several years to get it passed, and we did get it passed, and they just tried to repeal it in this last legislative session. But um, uh, at the time, uh, farmers were very much against it, and I got a lot of threats uh, phone calls and things at my house and had to have the state police come and take my kids to school and things like that. Uh, so for me, that was very controversial. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It was, it really hit home. Um, me, yeah, people would call and yell at my mother and stuff and she would cry. Yikes. Oh, it's just awful. Um, but anyway, so yeah, there, there have been a few, a few issues. Uh, of course, um, LBGTQ issues. Um, I was kind of in the forefront of that. I I have a huge uh, uh, LBGTQ population here in my dis- in this district, so I was right. always in front of that, which put me out there on some very controversial issues. I had to have the state police. The state police insisted that they escort me to speak at a Planned Parenthood rally out on the steps because. There were anti-abortion people across the street, and they were worried that I'd get shot. I mean, stuff like that. It's like you don't even wow. think about. It. You don't even think about it, and it's like, my gosh, all these people out here who are rallying and speaking—they don't have the state police protecting them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and uh, and they are all here standing bravely. Um, uh, uh, to protect their rights and the rights of their daughters. And, oh, it's, you know, there were times when uh, when I wondered, what in the world am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> there must be something else I could be doing with my time. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, 
I'm off track again. I'm sorry. No, no, that's good. I mean, all this information, you know, is useful for, you know, understanding your story. So, um, uh, let's see. I'm going to go into some specific questions uh, based on some of the research I did. Um, you mentioned earlier about, you know, your your work on women's productive rights and reproductive rights and everything. Um, you know, thinking about the abortion debate, I, I know that there were some articles that was talking about your involvement in that debate. Um, how has that debate, how did that debate evolve during your legislative career when you first joined the General Assembly versus when you when you're about to leave? Um, was it about the same or did it change over time? I guess it was about the same. I think uh, toward the end of my service, uh, there, uh, the, the legislators themselves, uh, many of the newer legislators were getting more and more militant okay. about, about their uh, more resolved to uh, ignore the uh, Roe v. Wade <laughs> and other court cases that were relevant. Um, uh, And so there were more bills introduced, perhaps. Um, Coming from California, I was kind of shocked that 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 was an issue again. Yeah. Um, But uh, I learned to live with the role. I, I created for myself. Um, I chose to be outspoken. Um, I used to have people come up to me all the time and say, oh, I wish I could speak out on that. You know, I really, I agree with your position on that. But, you know, in my district, I can't, mm. which always drove me crazy. Um, yeah. But I, uh, so it just became apparent that I was, I was the, it I was it you know um, there were a couple other people uh, later uh, Karen Senator Italian from uh, uh, Porter County uh, Porter County uh, she she became pretty outspoken uh, Jean Bro from Indianapolis uh, was always willing to get up and speak on the issue so it it wasn't it wasn't totally lonely <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, once uh, Senator Mayhern, um, Senator McCarty left the legislature, um, it was lonely there for a while. I'll say that. Uh, so I, I think it, the debate changed because there were more attacks uh, and people were more resolved to uh, more vitriolic. Okay. About about the issue, um, instead of trying to understand that there are other positions on it, uh, that it you know taking forcing a religious position on when life begins on all of us uh, because that's what you believe is probably not good public policy. But mm-hmm. um, but that's you know. So anyway, I I continue to worry about where we're going now. Senator Italian's retiring from the Senate, and uh, I don't know who's going to speak up. Okay. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier 
that you were the first woman to lead and serve on the state budget committee. Um, I also read that you were the first woman elected uh, Democrat leader by the Senate Democrat Caucus. I think I was the first woman to lead any caucus. Yeah. Okay. And, and I and I think I still am. Yeah. Yeah. So how did how did that come about? Describe what was going on at the time. Uh, well, our caucus uh, half of our caucus decided it, that we needed a change, and I was the assistant leader. Okay. Um. Uh, I also. Um, felt like we needed a change and I felt like we needed to be a little more aggressive in our recruitment of candidates and in our fundraising for campaigns um, that we need to be a little more a little less um, well there are two ways to get along in the in the Senate when you're in the minority you can be uh, kind of a you know, go along with things because we're in the minority and maybe you'll throw us a bone. Um, or you can be uh, aggressive, uh, use the press to your advantage and, um, and not take any BS from the other side. Yeah. And, uh, that I was more in that camp <laughs> and, uh, I ran for leader once and we lost by one vote uh, because somebody changed their vote on me in the last few minutes. Ooh, okay. Uh, pardon? I, no, I was just saying, I was like, wow, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the next time we elected leaders, I ran again, and uh, this time I had votes. So uh, that's how it came about. <laughs> yeah, interesting. All right. Um, tell me a little bit about your work uh, with the Indiana Commission for Women. Uh, yeah, I carried the bill uh, to create the Commission for Women um, with Senator Becky Skillman uh, from Bedford. And uh, and then I, both Becky and I were appointed to it. Um, I was... Um, I served on it for several years. Um, I was a little disappointed. You know, I come from a, a life experience of activism, and mm -hmm. and uh, and this was a um, an agency of state government, and so whomever the gov governor was got to figure out what the policy would be, and then. And then the commission would implement whatever policy. Uh, I thought that the commission should be doing more, um, and I I tried to a little more outspoken. I really wanted them to take positions on on legislation and things like that. And so it was a little disappointing. But at least at least we had one, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Every other state in the country had one. And yeah, and we were one of the last states to 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 do it. Um, so yeah, it was it was kind of combined for a while with the Civil Rights Commission, which we have really has a different uh, role and uh, different goals. So um, I was a little disappointed in that, and I still think they could be doing more. 
they give out awards and those kinds of things. So there's recognition for women who are achieving things in the state. And that's great. Uh, good, good. You know, we need to do that. Um, but I guess in the, in, as part of state government, it, it must be very difficult to, uh, to step out of line of whatever the governor's line happens to be. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but we did some work. Uh, we did, um, um, uh, something I was really interested in was the uh, salary disparity uh, amongst faculty members mm, okay. uh, in, at the university, state universities, um, where women um, were paid less than their male counterparts, right. uh, faculty and administrators particularly. Um, so we collected some of that information. I don't know whatever happened with that information, but uh, we collected it, and hopefully we embarrassed some of the universities into uh, to making some changes. Um, let's see. Uh, what else? Um, that's about... That, that's the thing I remember the most from my, my personal work. Yeah, okay. I invested in that. Um. I also saw that you worked on a program called the Indiana Children's Health Insurance Program, CHIP. Um, could you talk a little bit about that as well? That was my best bill. Yeah, okay, there we go. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, before the uh, national, before the federal government passed uh, Children's Health Insurance Program, uh, Indiana, about two years before, passed the Children's Health Insurance Program, which I authored, uh, worked really hard on it with the uh, Hospital Association and the Medical Association, particularly the uh, American uh, Academy of Pediatricians. Um, and, um, uh, and then got a Republican, Steve Johnson, to help with the bill. Uh, he was a great help to me. He really believed in it. Um, and we got it passed. It took us a couple of years, but we finally got it passed. And Indiana was the first, one of the first states to do a, a children's health insurance program, which provides health care to all children in Indiana. Um, and um, we were the first state to cover mental health as uh as part of the coverage for children's health insurance. So as a result, uh, Steve and I and uh, our house sponsor, Charlie Brown uh, from Gary, um, received national awards for our work on that bill. Yeah. And still to this day, I walk on the street um, and I'll have somebody come up to me and thank me because their child had a serious illness uh, or disease or injury, and they were able to receive coverage under CHIP, and uh, and it touches me. Wow! Yeah, I bet that's that's amazing. So anyway, that's uh, that's probably out of the hundreds of bills I carried over the years. Um, that's probably the one that means the most to me and make, and to the people of Indiana. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, I know early on in our conversation, you talked about uh, your work with uh, sort of environmental legislation. I read uh, several times about legislation dealing with voluntary environmental cleanups. Oh, uh, a national award winner. Another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah um, actually, the, the idea was not original. The idea came to me from... Um, from uh, from business people who who felt like there was uh, some remediation work that they could do on their properties, um, but they didn't want to do it without some kind of protection from the EPA or the or IDEM. Yeah. Um, so they, they wanted to do it voluntarily. Um, and wasn't there a way we could do that? So I worked uh, really hard to come up with the right language um, to uh, to accommodate all the federal legis- federal uh, laws and the state statutes and regulations, so that we we found this little sliver of um, opportunity. Um, and we wrote the bill around that, and I got Senator Gard to uh, Senator Bev Gard, who may have been the chair of the Environmental Committee at that time, uh, to do it with me. And uh, uh, it, it, so it didn't. It allowed these a company that had a spill or or did something or, or, or perhaps uh, acquired property that. Um, like underground storage tanks or something like that that on the property that may have leaked mm-hmm. and allowed them to remediate it without all the legal problems and um, and penalties and fines uh, in uh, that would be uh, imposed upon them by the EPA. Okay, yeah. Uh, so if they acted before EPA issued um, some kind of... Uh, uh, oh, the word has escaped me. But some kind of like a, a document, you know, saying that you have to remediate this. If they started the remediation process themselves, and they could get the IDEM to approve the remediation process, the plan for remediation, that they could go ahead and do it, and be and any. Um, IDEM or EPA action against them would be withheld until the remediation was complete uh, within a certain time period. Okay, yeah. And um, and so that bill was submitted, I think, by IDEM to the National Conference of State Legislators, uh, and it won uh, an award for uh, innovation. Hmm, Okay. Interesting. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> that was fun. That was fun to work on. So shifting gears uh, towards some big picture sort of reflective questions now. Um, why did you decide to leave the Indiana General Assembly? Um, in May of 2012, uh, John Gregg was... Uh, running for governor on the Democrat ticket. And uh, he asked me in May to uh, run with him as 
his lieutenant governor. Oh, okay. And so I couldn't, and I was, my term was up in yeah. 2012. And so I had to resign. Well, I didn't have to resign, but I did resign um, at that time so that they could have a senator in place because I figured I'd be campaigning full time. So I, I accepted his invitation and I ran for lieutenant governor. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. All right. It was time. Um, if I had been, I had served for 28 years and um, I had reached the pinnacle of everything I could do in the legislature because uh, yeah. I was the caucus leader. I had chaired the budget committee. Uh, there weren't very many other things that a Democrat could do um, in the legislature. Uh, plus, after 28 years, what I noticed is that the issues never really totally get resolved. They keep coming back uh, in a, perhaps a different name or a different form. But it's the same arguments, the same issues, the same debates. And so it was It was like, I, I need to have a different view. I love state government. I love it. I had lots of opportunities to run for Congress uh, over the years. And I chose not to because I really love state government. I love the issues. Yeah. I, love, I love that whole process. Um, but it was... Um, it was time for me to look at it from another viewpoint, and I thought um, that running for lieutenant governor would give me that opportunity. I had taken a, a stab at running for governor in 2003, and um, and there was <laughs> uh, I, I had to drop out because the, it's a long story, but Governor O'Bannon was not running for re-election, and the lieutenant governor, Kernan, uh, was not going to run for governor. And uh, and so it was an open seat, so I decided to run. And at the end of 2003, uh, Governor O'Bannon died, and, governor, and lieutenant governor Kernan became governor for a few months, and by the end of, uh, by October, he changed his mind and decided he was going to run for governor. So, mm, okay. uh, so I had to drop out. Yeah, um, yeah. So, what that experience showed me was that I, I think I could be, I think I'd be a good governor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, I, and I thought it would be being lieutenant governor would give me an opportunity to learn more about state government from a different perspective than through the legislature. Sure. And, and, uh, and it was time for me to learn new things. I didn't want to move away from state government necessarily, but I wanted to learn learn it from a different place. And so it, it, was, the, it was the right time. And uh, we came very close to winning, and we ran a decent campaign. So uh, John and I are friends and we talk fairly often and um i was happy to be his running mate yeah and, and it was a great experience running statewide was a really great experience yeah no that makes sense um so how would you summarize your time overall as a state legislator 
I loved it. I loved every minute of it, uh, even when I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Even when I frustrated and and uh, when my heart was broken and when um, and I had some very emotional days, um, issues, those kinds of things. But it still uh, it still filled me up. Um, every day was something uh, new, a new opportunity, a new person to meet. Um, and so for 28 years, it, it filled me to the brim. And I don't think you can ask for more than that from, from a job or a, you know, a position. Um, I, I love the legislative process. I really do. Um, I, my favorite thing in the world and why I like conference committees so much is that you put everybody in a room, uh, people of diverse opinions, uh, people fighting for you, people fighting against you, and and you try to find that magic compromise so that you can put the votes together to get a conference committee report uh, approved. Yeah. It's the one time when the minority has a has a is on a level playing field with the majority because the conferees there are four of us um one from each caucus and all four have to approve of the conference committee report now there are ways to get around that and the and the leadership occasionally would yank us off and put republicans on but for the most part they held held true to the um to the real reason for conference committees, and uh, and we would work it out. Yeah, and, uh, it's a it's a great process. Um, sometimes people were sneaky and got things in there that they probably shouldn't have. And to tell you the truth, I probably did that once or twice myself. Um, but the important thing is that that we were on a level playing field with the, our Republican counterparts. And they had to work with us, and we had to work with them, and we figured out compromise. Uh, so my favorite thing in the legislature was getting a committee room and inviting all the stakeholders into it and saying, okay, this bill's going to pass. So what do we need to do to fix it so that we get enough votes to make it pass or so that your, your constituents and your constituents are – are happy with it and uh, it's amazing how much you can get accomplished if you're willing to compromise and if you're not if you are also willing to share the glory and I do think women are better at that than men yeah okay interesting um, <clears throat> women are much more at least my experience in the Senate mm -hmm. has been that women were the women members were much more driven to Negotiate, compromise, and then share the share the glory. Mm, okay. Than our male colleagues. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite story from your time as a legislator? Oh gosh, I told you so many already. Um, <laughs> any any other stories? Yes, <laughs> or that's fine if if uh, you don't. But well, let's see. One of my favorite days was the day that uh, Bill and I got married in the rotunda at the State House. And oh, wow. 
And Lieutenant Governor Frank O'Bannon married us, and uh, <laughs> Senators Mike Gary and Louie Nahern were in the wedding, along with uh, Christina and Jason, our children. And um, and all, all our colleagues were there, and the governor, and the, all kinds of people came, and it was um, it was a beautiful day, except for the TV stations who thought they had to cover it. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh, yeah. They kept sticking their cameras in our faces. Oh, my gosh. And in the middle of the ceremony, you could hear the cameras whirring, you know, that noise. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, stop it. Wow. Like a Uh, royal wedding or something, yeah. But that was a a pretty special day. Yeah. Um, So, was your question about a special... Highlight or yeah, no, that's no that that answer. That's an interesting. Yeah, that's a good story. Um, let's see, what lessons did you learn from your time in the General Assembly? Oh, the, one of the most important ones. One of the most. Let me get my phone over. One of the most important ones is. Um, that compromise in a legislative process, whether it's the legislature or Congress or city council or school board, that compromise is a good thing. Compromise is a good word. I often, in my self-confidence, would introduce a bill that I thought was perfect. This is perfect. Yeah. And it's going to make perfect law. Uh, but by the time it went through the process, and I heard from people of differing uh, viewpoints, um, and we made changes to uh, to accommodate some of those viewpoints. The bill became better and better as it went through the process. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes it gets worse and worse, and you just want to say, get rid of that. I'm not even going to call that bill. But most of the time, um, the, the this whole process of compromise, of negotiating, of of listening to people uh, and sharing. If you have a shared goal, getting there, you you may have different ways of getting to that shared goal. Um, And if you can figure out ways to to compromise on that process so that you you can reach that shared goal together, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. um, and, And how many times in your life you know, whether it's with a spouse or uh, a work colleague or whatever, you find yourself in a similar situation where you disagree on something. And so do you just stay in this space of disagreement or do you figure out, well, how can we how can we turn this into a win win? Right. How can we how can we compromise so that we both maybe we both don't get everything we wanted but we each get something um and i have found that that's the uh, that's a precious lesson to learn and unfortunately people getting elected these days to whatever uh legislative body um uh, think compromise is a bad word. That sometimes yeah. compromise is compromising your principles, or compromising, or or somehow it's less than uh, that. That you have to win and you have to lose, rather than trying to find a place where you can all win. Um, 
and I, I think that we're losing that um, in legislative bodies these days. And it's really a shame because I don't think it's going to work very well. Yeah, it seems like that has been a, a major factor in sort of the increasing polarization that people keep talking about. So uh, um, yeah. I've heard a lot of former legislators reiterate that um, from, you know, whether Republican or Democrat, a lot of them feel uh, that things are not nearly as easy as they as they were in terms of being able to compromise and work together. So yeah, well, it's a bad word, you know. Yeah. If I'm right, then I, and if I compromise, then I'm giving in. I'm yeah. Weak. Yeah. I'm. I'm. That's a weak position, and 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 it's not at all. It's just the opposite. If there's strength in bringing people together and uh, and making sure that everyone gets something out of, from what you're negotiating. It's just, yeah. I don't know, it's a, that's what I always love the most about the legislature and the legislative process, and I'm sorry to see it going away. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any regrets as a former legislator? Probably too many to count. <laughs> yeah. I sound. Do I sound like Frank Sinatra? <laughs> <laughs> That's par for the course. I've had so. a few. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Sure. Um, I, I. I probably stepped on a few toes. Okay. In my days. Um, uh, but you have to be willing to be assertive to get anywhere. <laughs> and when men are assertive, you know, it's a good thing. When women are assertive, they say bad things about us. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I, uh, if I wanted to fight for something, I fought for it. And uh, I refused to... Uh, I, I refuse to take a back seat. Yeah. Um, I can remember uh, a budget committee, uh, well, they were conferees on the budget committee, uh, on the budget bill, um, which were usually the four members of the budget committee. And uh, so I was a member, uh, but there was a conference committee um, that had an informal meeting uh, and didn't invite me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. And, and I found out about it, and um, I crashed it. Um, <laughs> just walked in and said, "Oh, uh, sorry, I was. I'm sorry, I'm late." Um, and I just pulled up a chair, and nobody said anything. You know, it's like, okay, she's here now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, so I, I probably hurt some feelings or stepped on some toes but um my that wasn't my job my job wasn't to be the nicest person in the legislature yeah or the, the sweetest person my job was to represent my uh 110,000 people uh, to the best of my ability and you know and uh, I tried to do that yeah so um but you know girls are taught to be nice and sweet and so it goes against your grain to mm-hmm. to be tough and uh um so that's something i had to learn and and i did it 
<laughs> yeah, I imagine, yeah, when working in government, you have to, you know, especially in a, in a general assembly type situation, you have to develop a certain uh, way of doing things if you want to actually get something done, I suppose. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, let's see, do you have a proudest moment from your service? There were many of those, too. Um, when I worked really hard, like, years on some piece of legislation and it passed, um, that, that always made me very proud. Um, sometimes it was the little tiny things, you know, like uh, winning a debate in the conference committee or in a, uh, in a committee hearing, uh, being able to answer a question that a colleague thought they were going to trip you up. And, okay. And, you know, those kinds of things are small victories. Um, but uh, when you're in the minority, those small victories uh, are important because they keep your, your spirit up. They keep your energy going. Uh, so... Those were important. I had some big moments too. I was um, I was very proud to to be the lieutenant governor candidate. Yeah, I was very proud to represent our caucus when I was caucus leader. I was very proud to um, to chair the budget committee, and I think I did a good job at that. Um, uh, so there were there were a lot of moments that I can be proud of, but I uh, I. I hope I was a good mentor mm -hmm. uh, to uh, particularly other women getting elected to both the House and the Senate. Right. I uh, tried very hard to uh, be a place where they could come and talk, but, um, not just not necessarily ask for advice, but just get something off their chest if they wanted to. I tried to be an open door for everyone in my caucus, but particularly for the women in the House. And whenever a new a woman was elected over in the House, I, I tried to give them a call and say, look, my door's always open. There'll be days when you're so frustrated you want to kill people. You know, come over and talk to me because um, I, I think it'll help. And um, so I tried to be a mentor uh, for other women because I didn't have that when I first came. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, and and so I had to find my mentors where I could. Right, no, definitely. Uh, and so I tried to create that environment. Um, and I'm proud of that. I'm, I'm, I'm proud that I was uh, courageous enough, uh, brave enough to take on controversial issues that other people couldn't or wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Um. And um, I'd do it again if somebody asked me to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators? Oh, current legislators. <laughs> um, for future legislators, and this is advice I do give to them um, when, I'm, when I'm talking to them, um, Find an issue, find a, a topic, and become and, and gain expertise in that topic. Um, s research it, study it, um, have a 
conversational uh, relationship with it, you know, so that you become an expert on something. Yeah. On, on something. You can have a working uh, knowledge of, of lots of issues, and in the legislature you do because we're, you know, an inch deep and a mile wide in terms of what issues we uh, know about. But have one that really, that you know more about than anybody else. Because you will find that it, it, it people will start to respect you. Um, so that would be rule number one. People will start to depend on you because they're taking on other issues, right? So yeah. they will start to depend on you for information. And number two is always tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't don't hedge your bets. Don't lie. Don't you know? Always tell the truth and and be polite. Be courteous. Take take even if they're not courteous to you, which will happen. Always be courteous and respectful of each other, because remember, every person there was elected by constituents. Yeah. And so in the scheme of things, regardless of how many titles they have after their name or what committees they serve on or how long they've been there, in the scheme of things, you are just as important as they are and vice versa. So don't ever look down your nose at somebody because maybe their grammar isn't right or um, maybe they don't have a college degree or, or whatever. Because every person brings something new to the table. Mm-hmm. Every person has their own life experience that they can bring to the table. And so you have to be open to listening and respecting. Uh, you don't have to agree. I'm not saying that. But respect and listen to that person because they're bringing to the table the thoughts of 60,000 or 120,000 constituents. Um, and they're there to do their job. And so... You know, they, they deserve your respect. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And if you respect everybody and try to find something you like about everybody, which was always something I tried to do. So with some, I can tell you something good about almost everybody in the legislature. Yeah, okay. Something nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, you know, then focus on that. And then hopefully they'll try to find something good about you. Yeah, that's that's really good advice. Yeah, makes makes sense, especially if you want to be successful and uh, you know deal with lots of different people. So yeah, and you do. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, what, in your opinion, is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly? Now or in the past? Um, or? I, I guess yeah, the past and present. Gosh, there's so many things. Um, And I'm not sure I'm getting at what you're trying to get at. But let let me just say, I I think the most important work is to be that a first branch of government um, that balances out the other two branches. And, um, And that it is your responsibility to 
as a legislature to fund the work of state government. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, you have to um, you have to learn a lot about state government to know what what is real and what isn't real. But um, but I guess the funding of state government, uh, the the activities of state government, is probably the most important thing. Am I getting at what you're saying, or are you on yeah. more? You no. want more philosophical? No, it was an open-ended question. So yeah, whatever whatever you think is what it you know what's important. So, and maybe that's because of my own experiences because I followed the money as my yeah. as one of my mentors said. But um, uh, but it it seems to me that everything else grows out of. To me, the budget sets the priorities of the state. Uh, the budget speaks. It, in in a different kind of language, but it speaks the, the the what's important to the state in terms of public policy, and and so the the budget is more important than just the dollar amount. It it speaks to the priorities, mm-hmm. and so that's why I think the budget is so important. Um, but my gosh, there are so many other things. I mean the. Uh, um, access to the ballot and uh, protection of civil rights and um, not just civil rights but the rights of human beings yeah. and uh, the protection of, of families the protecting of families and workplaces and workers and oh my gosh I can go on and on I mean all those things are responsibilities of the legislature mm-hmm. and um, and to me it that's why it's the most interesting of the three branches of government yeah what would you say the public does not know about the Indiana General Assembly way more than than, than they should okay that's yeah, they should not. They should know more. Uh, but it's almost impossible these days because the media has, uh, has, uh, with some notable exceptions, has withered away. It's so difficult to figure out what people are doing at the legislature, yeah. the state legislature. And right now, there's such a um, a focus on federal government, um, and maybe rightfully so. But I, but. You know, in terms of what impacts your life on a day-to-day basis, state legislatures are probably more important than what Congress is up to. Um, yeah. And, yeah, so I I wish that people were more involved in their state government. But unless you have something, my my experience has been that if if a, a person in a pub a person in the public has some dog in the hunt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like if they have a child with a disability or a serious illness, or they have, uh, they live in a rural area and they have no broadband access, mm-hmm. or they, you know, uh, or they have a child who's getting ready to go to college, but there's no money to go. Um, 
unless they have some personal experience, most people just go along and they, and you know, it's the legislature functions and we're functioning and my family's functioning and there's no reason to get involved in that because there are so many other things I'm worried about, you know, paying my bills and keeping my job and yeah. sending my kids to school. Um, so the tendency is that unless you have that something that motivates you to force yourself into the process uh, for a personal reason, then most people stay kind of oblivious or above that legislative, the, the, the nasty stuff that goes on in the, at the legislature. And, um, and that is so unfortunate. And it used to be better because the press, the media, was much more capable of covering it. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, they're, because of budget cuts and et cetera, et cetera, there's hardly a press corps there anymore. Um, there aren't local news directors at radio stations. We used to have lots of those. You know, it's just, it's, um, it's really difficult to find the information that the public needs yeah. to, to follow what's going on. Yeah, you mentioned something really interesting about uh, um, sort of the takeover of federal government when it comes to media attention. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, do you think that, especially as you went into the 2000s into your service, that less and less people really thought anything about the General Assembly and state government, like it wasn't even on the radar and they might not even be aware of how much influence it has in their day-to-day life in their state? I, I think that's absolutely true. I think people aren't aware of it. Uh, when I when I talk to my high school classes or even my fourth graders, I talk in different words, but I usually put up a big chart and I tell them, you know, okay, what what kinds of things do, are you interested in? You know, like, do you have potholes in your? What, do you ride in a school bus to school? Uh, do you uh, participate? Uh, you know, do you have AP classes, for instance, at high school, or do you have? Um, uh, do you do you pay? Are you a taxpayer? Mm-hmm. I, I ask them those questions, and I put up a big chart, and I put I put federal, state, local, and then when they start talking about issues, like you know, if, they, if somebody says police. I said, okay, that's local government. That goes down here. Okay, now what's another issue? Well, there's this, there's that. And I put them up there. And and before you know it, the state line is completely full. Yeah. And the the federal has maybe war and peace. Yeah, right, (laughs) right. And that's about it. They don't don't even think of themselves as taxpayers. Yeah. So you have to remind them, you you pay sales tax every time you go buy a new... uh, video game or whatever it is kids buy these days, um, and uh, and just seeing it visually, I think helps people understand how impactful state government is on their lives. Yes, it is incredibly important um, when you figure that it's schools and school funding. It's um, it's. Uh, Roads, it's uh, the allocations to local government. Uh, so your local government doesn't even function without state government. 
and uh, and they exist because of state government uh, statutes. And, you know, you just go on and on. The courts and blah, blah, blah. They think the courts are local. Well, they're not. They're state. Yeah. And so yeah. is the prosecutor. <laughs> and, and so, it, but it's really, it's interesting because people don't think about their everyday life in right. those terms. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, it's absolutely true. It's uh, also, then it just makes me think about uh, when it comes to, you know, the ways that state government affects the federal government with things like redistricting and gerrymandering. Um, yeah. uh, you know, thinking about that and what the public may or may not know about that role from their own state in the, in the federal process. Um, h- how uh, influential would you say uh, things like gerrymandering were or lobbying and just money and politics in general in the, in the General Assembly? Well, it costs it it costs upwards of uh, some. There were some house races that cost two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Now, I yeah. told you that my first race was thirty five thousand, which was the highest of anybody yeah. at the time. Um, and just to tell you how much money is now involved, well, where do you think that money comes from? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the money comes from uh, a lot of special interests. Those special interests, however, uh, people like to say special interests like there's some uh, dark yeah, right. folks out there somewhere in some you know cave that, <laughs> that are controlling government. Sure. But special interests, you know, are like labor unions. You belong to a labor union? Well, you know, some of your dues goes to um, to the political candidates. Mm-hmm. And um, do you belong to the Chamber of Commerce? Do you have a business? you belong to the Chamber of Commerce? Well, they, uh, they're big contributors. And, you know, you go on and on. The realtors and the teachers and everybody has, there's, everybody's a special interest. And so it, it isn't that special interests are bad right. or that money is coming from those special interests that represent all these constituents out there, but it's just too much money. Yeah. There should be limits on on how much is spent, and I know, you know, we get into First Amendment issues and all of that, but but the truth is that there should be some kind of limitations on on what we can spend money on. The TV ads that run anymore are so expensive and they're so awful. They're really evil and have contributed, I think, to the overall public's disdain for, I said that wrong, the public's overall disdain for um, for the Congress and for the legislature. Um, I, the, the greatest evil of all is gerrymandering, I think, because it is undermining our democracy in such a way that um, yeah. that it's perverting the, the, the democracy. Um, I heard Bill talk a lot about it, so I don't want to repeat what he said, but, but um, let me just add to you, for you that uh, one of the jobs of the caucus leader is to recruit candidates to run. It's really difficult to recruit candidates to run in a district that's uh, 70% Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the quality of candidates is driven down. The number of contested races is driven down. Yeah. Uh, even even if you can get people to run, um, 
there are a lot of races that go unchallenged completely, which means there is no campaigning. And what happens when there's no campaigning? Well, there's no opportunity for the for the elected official to meet face to face with the, with their constituents. There, we have a thing. That I don't know if this is statewide or not. I I think it is that um, the Republican candidates for the legislature don't even go to the candidate forums anymore. Wow. They just, they refuse. They won't even go. And so, you know, and the League of Women Voters has this rule that if your opponent doesn't doesn't show up, then you don't get to speak either. And so there's no, there's no public debate anymore yeah. in these races. And I mean, it's just, it, it, I, I can just go on and on about the effects of gerrymandering. And they're, they're negative. And it isn't just for those in the minority. Uh, sure, it's awful to be in the super minority. I've never been there, but I can imagine it would be terrible. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it's, um, it isn't just that. And it isn't just the imbalance of Republican ideas and Democrat ideas and, you know, there's no negotiation or compromise anymore. But it's also, you know, why do I even bother to vote if you're unopposed Mm -hmm. or if there's some goofball running against you because they couldn't find another candidate? Um, Or you've got $5,000 to spend and your opponent has hundred thousand dollars to spend um you know why should why why does my vote even matter yeah and so what it's done is disenfranchised all these voters out there and i happen to think that indiana is slightly republican but the truth is if you add up I mean, Obama won Indiana. Right. You know, it's not always all Republican. Yeah. Um, and and so the legislature should reflect that. So the and if it did reflect that, all for the whole general assembly, there would be better debate. Mm-hmm. There would be debate at, at the general assembly level. But also, there would be some accountability for those people who are already serving. They could care less what their constituents think now. Yeah. They don't care. They don't care because they're going to get reelected. The only way, the only people that they fear, the only, the only real fear they have is from a primary opponent, which forces everybody to be more extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the only the only uh, opponent anymore. There's no there. I, I can't even count. They're they're not. I can't count on one hand. No, I could count on one hand. Um, how many contested races there are? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it's bad for the general assembly. It's bad for voters. And I don't know when people are going to wake up. Interesting side note. Um, in mm, the 90s, after the 91 redistricting, I started introducing bills to go to a nonpartisan or bipartisan commission, yeah. an independent commission. I've tried it a million different ways. Constitutional amendment, um, uh, statute. Uh, I've tried a, di- a million different ways. And 
my partner in uh, in doing it was uh, then Republican caucus member Brian Bosma, oh, okay. who later became Speaker of the House, of course. Um, he and I were both in the minority that in in a few of those years in the nineties, and we kept introducing this legislation. And we were, you know, I continued even after he stopped supporting it. Um, but it's it's devastating. It is damaging. It is perverting our democracy in Indiana, and it's it's so sad to see. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, something that's uh, I think that the the general public, you know, I don't think there's me in the general public that really like the idea of gerrymandering. So. <laughs> Um, it's, well, no, it's, they uh, don't, but nobody thinks about yeah. it until it's time for gerrymandering again. Right, and right. And then it's too late. Yeah. Like, we should be going right now, we should be changing the law and mm -hmm. getting prepared for the 2031 reapportionment. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like so far away and people have so many other things to think about that, you know, no one will do it. But the truth is, now is the time we should be planning for how we're going to do redistricting in 2030, and we never do it. So about 2029, they'll start talking about it again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I guess would you say then that's kind of one of the major things you would want uh, people of Indiana to know about when it comes to how they can influence the Indiana General Assembly is to uh, sort of be prepared for, for issues like that ahead of time and not, not just thinking about it when it comes around every decade well absolutely in in the case of, of uh, redistricting right i mean because it is uh, uh you know every 10 years so yeah. yeah and if you wait till the last minute it's too late yeah so it has to be done it has to be done now um but uh, but that's not the way we do things so it's gonna make it really hard mm -hmm. and and the truth is that because the power resides in the legislature to change this process, and because of the supermajorities that control the legislature, it will not be changed unless the people demand it. Mm -hmm. And if the people demand it and insist that there be changes, then, then they'll make the change. Uh, I, I heard Bill talking to you about uh, license branches. Well, you know, when the majority party is in charge and they're getting paid for, to run the license branches, nobody's going to change that process until the people demand it. Right. And they did. They demanded it. And so, you know, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time now that we've got maps and we're going to get through this next election in 2022 and people will see that the maps aren't, haven't fixed anything, uh, then maybe we all hit the streets, you know, we get our little signs and we say, fix it now. Um, uh, I'm, I'm probably too old to do that, but somebody should do that. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the only way it's going to change. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, let's see. Last couple questions. Um, from your experience in Indiana, uh, how has the state changed over time? I think you mean the whole state. Yeah, the yeah, the whole state of Indiana. Oh boy, 
I think the divisiveness between Republicans and Democrats has gotten down to the communities now. Okay. And um, so I, I, I think people are angrier, um, less uh, willing, less tolerant, uh, less willing to listen to one another. Um, but I think that's national. I don't think that's Indiana. Right, say, right. Or specifically. I just think that that's, uh, you know, the old pendulum has swung in that direction. And hopefully it'll start swinging back. Yeah. Um, what qualities do uh, Hoosiers still have or hold dear? Sure. Um a sense of community, um, neighborhoods, community. Um, those are words I, I, I find particularly applicable mm-hmm. in Indiana. Coming from California where people feel less that sense of community because it's a very transient uh, society. Uh, I think the average stay in a house in California is three years. Wow. I I, Bill and I just moved from a house that we lived in for 43 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I don't know, people uh, People have a sense of, and maybe this is unique in smaller towns like Bloomington or, or even smaller. Um, maybe it isn't the same in Indianapolis and, and bigger cities, but um, there is a sense of community that um, that I find endearing. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I love Brown County so much is because they are, and they fight with each other, but boy, nobody better say anything bad about Brown County. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or they'll, they'll get their shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just, I, I really, I admire that. And, um, and I have always loved the fact that I am part of a community like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, I think that's it. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, that's all the questions I have. Uh, do you have anything that you wanted to mention that we didn't talk about or? I don't know what would be left. Yeah. (laughs) Covered (laughs) quite a bit. So yeah. Wow. (laughs) No, it was really You're good. You're a very patient man. Oh, well, I appreciate, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to, to talk to me and do, do an interview. It was really informative and interesting, and uh, um, I think it will be another good project, a uh, good interview to add to our website and everything else.